This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, an affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. So, when you hear the word mystic, what comes to mind? Perhaps someone who is rather otherworldly, a hermit? If male, certainly. Long beard and robes. Oh, and a turban. Mystics love turbans. So, you might think this person resides in another time and place. It might be difficult to imagine that the fan sitting three rows in front of you at the ball game, or perhaps the customer just in front of you at the checkout lane, might be considered a mystic. But as of late, it's not out of the question that people who live on what some might designate rather mundane lives on one level could be on a mystical journey on another. Well, today we'll see if you might be counted among these enigmatic beings as we welcome back to Common Threads my cousin, Tom Stella. If you've been listening for a while, you might guess that he pretty much breaks the record for number of times appearing on Common Threads. And you can hear all of our conversations from over the past 20 years on our podcast archives. His latest book is Meditations for Mediocre Mystics. Inspiration for the Spiritually Homeless and Hungry. A little bit about Tom. He was ordained a Catholic priest in the Congregation of Holy Cross in 1972. He now exercises his call to minister in a variety of ways as a hospice chaplain, spiritual director, retreat facilitator, teacher, and writer. He is the co-founder and director of Soul Link Incorporated, a nonprofit whose mission is to create opportunities for spiritual seekers to meet and nurture one another's interior life. Tom is an associate visiting professor of religion at Colorado College and an instructor at the Center for Spiritual Living in Colorado Springs. So we welcome, once again, to Common Threads, Tom Stella. Hi, Tom. Hi, Fred. Nice to be with you. As always, it is to be with you. Uh, so let's let's start our conversation by asking about that very interesting title. Obviously, you have limited expectations for your readers. <laughs> yeah. I, I suspect that the the book doesn't come with a robe and a turban. So, what was your goal in writing this? Uh, I guess the goal would be to uh, have people realize that there is a depth to them and to all humanity. Uh, that has to do with something ultimate, infinite, but at the same time, intimate. That uh, that which we long for spiritually is is within our within ourselves and in our midst in an everyday, ordinary fashion. Right, and so what I talked about uh, in the introduction, the the person at the ball game, the person at the checkout lane, th- this is for ordinary. People, we, what we call them ordinary, that is to say, uh, they are not locked in a convent uh, or a monastery, right? These are people who are in the world, correct? 
correct. Right. Not, I think uh, your, your lead-in was uh, very accurate in saying that I think most people's understanding of mystic has something to do with people who maybe are floating a few inches above the ground rather than having our feet anchored and our everyday life being uh, uh, somewhat uh, unremarkable uh, in appearance anyway. Sure, sure. And by the way, I, I would suspect after reading this that those people who are committed to convent or monastery life would also get something out of this book as well. So maybe you, yeah. you might even you might even get people above the grade of mediocre <laughs> as a as part of your fan base. Um and and the book is Interfaith, that is, you draw on multiple traditions uh, in this. What I have found, and tell me your, your thoughts on this, in the world of interfaith, there are n- many people who, when they look at the different religions, they're so motivated to uh, see what we have in common. And so they say, oh, all the religions are alike which on one level is absolute nonsense. Uh, the theologies are different. The concept of deity is different. Afterlife theories are, are different. But what I have found is that when mystics gather of different traditions, they're able to say that, yes, these religions hold a, a strong common denominators because they don't concentrate on those other things, such as speculation of afterlife, a, a concept of deity, or at least they're able, they're able to live with those differences much easier than others. Has that been your experience? Uh, it is, actually, yes, and that was well put. Um, if you stay on the surface, those differences are very real. But when you sink beneath it, uh, there is a, a commonality. Just as an example, I just uh, came back from Phoenix, where uh, uh, for a number of years I've given a retreat with another fellow. I focus on Thomas Merton, a Catholic monk who's considered a mystic, and his focus was on Thich Nhat Hanh, a Buddhist monk, also a mystic. And uh, people were really, I think, uh, taken with the commonalities despite those different traditions. Uh, correct. And as long as you don't see those differences as threatening, right? So you, you have to be at a certain level you ha- of acceptance of of other possibilities, correct, in, in terms of... That's right. That's yeah. right. And I think a lot of people who are immersed in whatever tradition they may have been born into or have embraced, uh, there's a lot of uh, security that can come with that. Um, sticking with, you know, the tenets of the faith tradition and uh, it, other ways of thinking can feel threatening, as you, as you say. Sure, sure. Your, uh, um, the full name of the book, Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, Inspiration for the Spiritually Homeless and Hungry. That, that term, spiritually homeless and hungry, that goes back a few years for you, doesn't it? It does. Um, yeah, uh, I, I see, talk to, deal with a lot of people who 
uh, would fall under that uh, category, spiritually homeless and hungry. Spiritually homeless in that many of them have left a faith tradition they may have been born into, uh, but they have not found another home. And so their hunger spiritually, it hasn't been satisfied. A lot of those folks do find a connection in nature or just gathering with other people who share their spiritual seeking. But many of them remain kind of homeless and unable to find a community with which to share their beliefs. I remember being a part of an interfaith uh, salon years and years ago. And now, now I would say virtually all of the people, at least the ones who are coming to mind at this moment, did have a spiritual home. They belonged to a synagogue, a church, a temple, a mosque, whatever. But they also came to this meeting once a month where we discussed matters of theology and so on. And I think at least two people in that group said that they felt more at home in this group than they did in their official, if we can use that term, official spiritual community. And, and I, I never forgot that because, uh, again, we tried to, to go a few levels underneath. You, you, a few minutes ago, you talked about the surface. We, we did try to go underneath. I wouldn't call it a group of mystics entirely, but regardless, uh, it, it, was, it was very gratifying to have such deep, honest discussions with people from a variety of faiths. And on occasion... Uh, someone of no faith. Uh, and I'm, I'm going to guess that the people that you might deal with, some, some people have a concept of deity and some people don't. Is that, is that a fair guess? Uh, it is. It is. And it's also true that some remain at least with one foot in the practice of the tradition that they uh, claim. Uh, but many of them, again, it's not satisfying enough. And this, this would be uh, a lot of the people who gather for the events we sponsor at Soul Link. Um, I call them a loose affiliation of misfits. And the most people sort of resonate with that. Um, but they do find that sharing in that group feels more like home than the tradition they uh, con- may continue to be a part of, but it doesn't satisfy their deeper needs. And, and tell me the, the kinds of functions, events that might take place with Soul Link. Uh, pretty simple. You know, we had a book group, um, some classes, and several times a year a retreat that gives people an opportunity to uh, connect with folks who share their spiritual longing. Mm. Now, when you were in the seminary, and we're talking late 60s, early 70s, a lot was going on in the Catholic Church, a lot of new ideas implementing changes from Vatican II. I'm curious if, and, and, and Thomas Merton had uh, recently passed away. Um, so I'm curious, did you have any classes on mysticism? Um, would someone in your class who expressed an interest in such be thought of as eccentric and perhaps maybe not even priest material or, or not? Am I off base? 
So you're talking about the semin- seminary curriculum? Uh, c- correct. Or let's say the seminary curriculum and seminary culture. If Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I would say no. Mysticism was never really at focus. Uh, it was it was theology, it was scripture, um, learning the tradition. You know, mystic mysticism in the Catholic tradition has been there for millennia, but it was never has never been mainstream, and probably never will be. But um, it was not part of what we were presented with in any formal fashion. I, I remember at least one Catholic saying that we like our mystics to be dead. <laughs> yeah. right. After we canonize them, then we can talk about them. <laughs> right. Right. During, it's like prophets. You know, prophets are, you can lift them up when they're dead, but when they're alive, they're a threat. Sure, sure, exactly. Uh, when did you become involved? When did your interest peak, shall we say? Uh, years ago, uh, uh, for the the more mystical, the more contemplative. Yeah, uh, it, initially it came through reading Thomas Merton, um, and he being a uh, Trappist monk, I was uh, drawn to uh, experience that life, and I have done so in, in numerous times for uh, with retreats in Trappist monastery. And that really fanned the flame of my interest. And would you say that, uh, are you talking about Gethsemane uh, in particular, or are there others? There are others. The one that I uh, have gone to for over 35 years is Genesee Abbey, which is in upstate New York. Uh Uh, Probably made famous by Henry Nouwen's book, uh, Genesee Diary. He spent six months there and, and, uh, wrote about his experiences. All right. I, I want to remind people, if you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is my cousin Tom Stella, author of his latest book, Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, Inspiration for the Spiritually Homeless and Hungry. So I'm curious, uh you obviously have a great deal of experience at this particular uh, uh, monastery, uh, Genesee. Have they kept up the tradition over the years in in a manner that reflects the spirit of, say, someone like Thomas Merton? Uh, yeah, they have. They have. Uh, and Merton was very much a bridge to the East, uh, spiritually speaking, and... Uh, in the center of uh, the grounds at Genesee is a, a Japanese garden. So they they continued that piece of uh, connection with Merton and again with the East. Mm. I've known a number of people who love reading about mysticism. You know, give them a book by Merton or St. Teresa of Avila or Rumi. Uh, but they have a hard time with the motivation to actually do the spiritual work required. Some people think perhaps that you might be able to read your way into ecstasies uh, uh, that were experienced by the saints of various religions who attest to those saints being real. I'm curious, in your work with people, you must find them at all stages 
does this at all resonate with with your experience in terms of dealing with people? Uh, that is to say, people who love to read about it but uh, won't put the book down to sit on the floor or in a chair or on their bed, wherever they're supposed to be sitting. Right. Yeah. Um, well, Merton once said, I'd rather read about prayer than pray, acknowledging that it's it's a challenge. It's a, it's a discipline to to meditate, for instance. And uh, I think, yes, it's very easy to read about it, to resonate with it, but then to get up and go about one's day without that sensitivity to the depths. And then I'm guessing there might be other people who are really into experience so much. And the it seems like all of the traditions... The, uh, the major traditions, such as Catholicism, uh, Jew, Jewish Kabbalah, uh, Hindu yoga, uh, uh, the Buddhist uh, contemplative practice, uh, they all indicate that one can have very deep and profound experiences, but not everybody has those, or they can be very few and far between. And I'm also curious if in your counseling with people, you find you find folks who might be disappointed that hey i've been i've been meditating for a year now and i still don't see <laughs> anything <laughs> right i see the darkness behind closed eyes maybe i'm not meant for this yada 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 and then just sort of yeah. drop out with disappointment is that also your your experience with folks very much so um, i think one of the mistakes is that people think that mysticism um, is about an experience. Uh, and in one sense it is, but at the same time, it's, uh, it's about more. One of the most profound conversations I ever had, which lasted about 30 seconds, was with a monk at Genesee Abbey. He had been there 30 years, and I asked him, you experience God more now than you did 30 years ago when you came here. And he said, no, but now it doesn't matter. And mm-hmm. the, the it doesn't matter really strikes me as spiritual maturity. It's not about feeling. It's about conviction. You know, walking with a sensitivity to the, uh, the fact that we're on holy ground, whether it feels that way or not. Right. Yeah, that, that certainly is very powerful. Uh, do you have uh, the book in front of you now? I do. What I'd like to do, well, first of all, let's let's explain the format of your book. So you've taken words from some of the great mystics, and you provide a reflection for that, something perhaps that might bring it more into today's time and place. And, of course, it also gives you the opportunity to add your own thoughts to the, their thoughts. And I'm wondering if you could uh, right now just pick out a couple of your favorites, one, uh, ones that truly reflect the spirit of the book, and we can talk about those. There would be a number of them that I could focus on. But That's fine. I can, we, read, we, we, I can read the opening. Go ahead. Oh, I'm saying we got some time, so... That's fine. Go ahead. You you were going to say something about the opening? 
Well, the uh, the opening quote for each of these uh, little chapters is not necessarily from a mystic, but um, often it is the case. And uh, I'll read one called In Sync with the Sacred. We live in a culture that begs us to conform. Through its various messages, it calls us to squeeze into its mold. It exerts external pressure on our minds to believe in and by its opinions, hopes, and aspirations. Yet the pursuits that define most of our culture never fully satisfy our heart and soul. That's a quote from a person named Joshua Becker. Uh, so I, I go on to, uh, I think, try to put some flesh on that. And the words, that, uh, the words above are from motivational speaker Joshua Becker, who whose message is one of having an authentic life. I have found that living in this manner involves being in sync with something sacred, an intuition, a sixth sense, a deep voiceless voice that summons us beyond the conventional wisdom of society, whose ways of thinking, believing, and behaving that go unquestioned. I just think that that, that sums up some of what um, happens as we go through life surrounded by uh, conventional ways of thinking and, and living. And uh, to move beneath that is to be in sync with something sacred within ourselves. So that's what he's uh, positing and that I try to build on. Yeah, it's interesting when I think about some aspects of your life. For instance, you deciding, I believe, I believe it was in high school that you started moving towards the thought of seminary. Am I correct? Um, that's true. I resisted that until uh, after my first year of college, but it was back in in the early 60s. So when you decided to move in that direction, did you think that you were, in hindsight now, do you think that you were uh, conforming or being a nonconformist? At that mm-hmm. point, because obviously uh, going into the priesthood is something that very few uh, young people do. At the same time, you are joining a very conformist institution. So I'm just, have you ever thought about, have you ever thought about that, whether you were conforming or not conforming to social yeah. pressures? Uh, yes, uh, that certainly has been in my mind often, uh, because at that time in the early '60s, right on the cusp of Vatican II, it was very much a conformity to what priesthood had, had always been. And uh, but as I made my way through, uh, it became very much uh, a matter of being a nonconformist in terms of society, somebody who stands for something different rather than just a, uh, uh, the practice of one's religion. It really made a 180 shift for me during those years in the cemetery. cemetery, cemetery. <laughs> now, <laughs> if that Freudian isn't Freudian, Freudian, I don't know what is. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of, of you as a nonconformist, I remember conversations with you. Uh, you were uh, saying that um, you used to... Uh, a pinch hit, I believe you, you, you pinch hit 
saying mass uh, locally in where you are in the area in, in Colorado, and that people would take notes and send them to the bishop in terms of <laughs> what you were saying <laughs> in your sermons? Uh, yeah, that, that's kind of true. <laughs> but you know what they say about the preaching is uh, you are to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Yeah. I'm curious so, how how did the the bishop respond in in most cases? Uh, well, the, initially the bishop uh, was a pretty progressive guy, and he just you know would write me a, a note saying you know please respond to this person. Um, when he retired and a more conservative bishop came up came in, uh, then it, it just became more difficult to uh, to be in that role uh, of priest and preacher. I see. I see. Um, I'm curious now, we only have a couple of minutes left, Tom, but um, are you on any sort of promotional tour, virtual or otherwise, with your book? Uh, no, not really. I, I, you know, lined up a couple of local uh, signings, mm-hmm. but um, otherwise, no. Okay, so you can you can stay home and enjoy the holidays. Uh <laughs> Well, listen, uh, as I say, we're, we're down to the wire for this particular episode of Common Threads, but I have uh, many more questions to ask you and would love for you to share more from your book. So why don't we make it a point to join together next, uh, next week at the same time? Sounds good to me. You're listening to Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today, my cousin Tom Stella, and he is the author of Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, inspiration for the spiritually homeless and hungry. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU-FM. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue.
I'm Fred Stella, president of the Interfaith Dialogue Association, an affiliate of the Kaufman Interfaith Institute. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Last week, we began our conversation with my cousin, Tom Stella. Tom has been a guest multiple times over the decades here on Common Threads, and he's back. This time, because he has released a new book, it's entitled Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, Inspiration for the Spiritually Homeless and Hungry. Tom was ordained a Catholic priest in the Congregation of Holy Cross in 1972. I was actually at that ordination. But now he exercises his call to minister in a variety of ways, as a hospice chaplain, spiritual director, retreat facilitator, teacher, and writer. He is the co-founder and director of SoulLink, Incorporated, a nonprofit whose mission is to create opportunities for spiritual seekers to meet and nurture one another's interior life. Tom is an associate visiting professor of religion at Colorado College and an instructor at the Center for Spiritual Living in Colorado Springs. So we welcome once again to WGVU's Common Threads, Tom Stella. Hi, Tom. Hi, Fred. Nice to be with you. Yes, indeed. It is always wonderful to uh, chat with you. Uh, So uh, before we get into your book, I want to talk about a little bit about you now. So are you teaching presently at Colorado College? Uh, I'm not, no. uh, They've cut back on visiting professors for financial reasons, so at this point I'm not. Uh, what, What courses were you teaching? Uh, I taught a course uh, called Catholicism, Past, Present, and Future, another course on Thomas Merton, and a team taught a course on religion and science with a professor from the chemistry department. Wow, that sounds sounds like you would attract a fair amount of students and very spiritually and intellectually inquisitive students. A- am I right, or did you just have a reputation oh, yes. for an easy A? <laughs> <laughs> I probably am an easy A, but um, <laughs> but they were genuinely interested and motivated. So it was a, a lot of work. Uh, Colorado College is one of only two schools on a um, block plan, which means the students take one course for three and a half weeks. It's very intense. Ah. And uh, as a professor, you have to be ready on the first day for the last day. Yeah, Okay. I, I can see that. And and the fact that it is a, a secular college, uh, it, it is interesting that they offer those classes, but obviously quite wonderful. Uh, and, and I'm curious, did you find students who took it because they were on a spiritual search above and beyond the academic? Uh, yeah, I would say so, especially the, the Merton course. Uh attracted people who uh, who were on a journey, as Merton was throughout his life, from from being a something of a playboy for in his youth to then becoming a, a monk and a priest. So mm-hmm. I think that that is part of Merton's popularity even now, some 50 years after his death. And uh, some students certainly resonated with that. Sure, sure. Um, I want to touch on something that we also touched on last week, but just in case anyone missed last week's episode, I'd like you to d- provide a, a modern explanation or definition 
uh, of a mystic today. Who are the mystics of today, aside from those people who might be cloistered in convents, monasteries, ashrams, etc.? I would say the the mystic of today is not somebody who would say, I'm a mystic. They would say, I care about life. Uh, there's a dimension of me that I believe in called soul that I want to pay attention to through reading or conversation or quiet time. Uh, so mystics are, uh, I believe, everyday ordinary people, but with a sensitivity and a consciousness that there's more to them and to life than meets the eye. And there is there is a willingness to move in the direction of fanning the flame of, of that awareness. That that clarifies a great deal. Thank you. I, I, I appreciate that. Um, another thing we talked about last week, and it didn't occur to me to ask you this then, but you talked about the various people that you counsel, because you are a spiritual advisor, and you also have this organization, Soul Link, which we talked about last week, where you gather together in various events with people who are on a deep spiritual journey. And you mentioned that there are some people who are spiritually homeless, meaning that they have left perhaps the, the religion of their birth, if they had a birth religion. And you also said that there are some people, I believe the term you used is they still have one foot in their, uh, uh, in their birth religion, but they, they're seeking something more. And so they affiliate with your organization and the, the other people that you attract. I'm curious how much you've had to deal with uh, the, the issue of when somebody leaves uh, the the religion uh the faith community that that nurtured them their whole lives but there's also a community of people including their family that they come it's part and parcel of that religious faith i'm curious if you have had uh to counsel people who are pained because of the response of that community to them leaving? Uh, yeah, I, I have. And uh, I would say it's not uncommon that when a person realizes that they have uh, outgrown some of the beliefs and practices that once fed them, but that still feed their families, for instance, or close friends, uh, it becomes uh, it becomes very painful on, on both ends. Some of the uh, the parents I know of young people who have begun to walk a different path, uh, have felt very, um, very much like they've failed somehow. But uh, I think for the most part, it, it can be a, a bit of a dark path initially because of the, the rift that sometimes takes place between people who once were close and shared a common belief, but now don't, no longer do so. Do you have any particular advice and, and I realize of course every every person's situation could be a little bit different but is is there something that you say in most cases to someone like this in in this position well I would I would say um, you know you have to follow your heart and if that results in uh, creating a distance 
then that's not necessarily a bad thing because uh, that becomes part of their journey and the journey of those who, in a sense, they're leaving behind. It's always difficult to disappoint people you love. And when that happens to be the case, it's it's a real uh, call to growth, I think, for the person who has, again, outgrown the uh, tenets of their family's faith tradition. But it's also a, an invitation to growth for those who uh, feel somehow like their son or daughter close relative has gone a different direction. It's, a, it's an invitation to them to broaden their scope a bit. Right, right. I know someone who uh, went through this a few years ago. They told me they, they decided to, uh, 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 it was a woman, and this woman said she, she really wanted to share her spiritual journey with her parents. I, mean, I don't mean take them on it with the, with her. I simply mean it's important to me. You know who I am right now, and so right. she she wanted to make sure her mom and dad were at, at at their home. That she had something she wanted to say, and I, I know that there was a little bit of joy because she wasn't married, and no, she wasn't coming there to tell them she was pregnant. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, to at least the to at least the father, this probably, you know, saying that I I am no longer a part of your tradition. I'm no longer a part of the tradition that raised me, and quite frankly, I haven't been participating in this tradition for years anyway. Um, but but this is who I am right now, and the uh, the, the father acted. Uh, very, very frustrated, uh, angry from what I recall. The mother was trying to uh, uh, run interference, and uh, even though it disappointed her, uh, she did not want the the anger uh, expressed in in her house. Um, But the good news is that that, uh, they were able to reconcile fairly early on because when... the, the father said something to the effect of, don't bring that heresy. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I don't know what it, right. but it was something like, don't bring that heresy into this house. And she says, well, that means you don't want me in this house because mm-hmm. uh, uh, this is this is who I am. And And what I found fascinating, again, this woman had not practiced the religion of her family for years but that didn't bother them. It was it was the fact that well, I'm, I'm sure that they would have loved for her to you know go to church every Sunday and all that. But but regardless, at, at least uh, they could pretend <laughs> that she was still in the fold. Um, but right. you know, but then all of a sudden, uh, no, she wants to identify as as something else, a part of another tradition, a more mystical tradition, contemplative tradition. Right. Yeah, that didn't that didn't fly. You know, it's it's very much akin to the sort of coming out. It's usually associated with sexual orientation. Yes, it's it's a real declaration of this is who I am. Uh, not necessarily meant as to be harmful to anybody else, but that honest communication, I think, is 
is not easy, but it's it's the best and most mature way to handle that. You are correct. If that happens to if that happens to be hurtful to again to somebody we love, uh, that becomes part of their journey have to, to have to deal with that. Yes. Mary Oliver, if you're familiar with her, the poet has a beautiful poem called "The Journey," where she talks about how disappointing it can be when you follow your path, but it it diverges from the path of people you love. Oh, you know, it's funny because it just occurred to me as I've been, if we've been having this part of the conversation about uh, all of a sudden uh, stepping out of the tradition that may have birthed you, I'm completely thinking about when I say family, um, uh, you know, mother, father, siblings, maybe even cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, whatever. But it just occurred to me, how about have you ever had the issue where it's one spouse versus another in terms of one spouse saying, okay, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I want to remain married, but I can't, you know, go to church or mosque with you anymore because it's not who I am. Have you ever had that kind of counseling, either with an individual or the couple themselves? Yeah, absolutely. It does happen, and I have dealt with that. Um, and sometimes if you add the factor of children, then that complicates things as well, because most parents, especially early on, want to give their children uh, some kind of a experience in a faith tradition to which later they can rebel if they want. When one parent is believes that and tries to practice that and the other all of a sudden, for instance, becomes a Buddhist as opposed to a Catholic, it makes navigating all of that very difficult. Yes, it, but it, it certainly does happen within marriages, yes. Certainly. I, I appreciate what you said about, about uh, rebelling because I, I knew uh, years and years ago two brothers— their mother put them into a Lutheran school, and they weren't really raised from infancy with any religion, but then all of a sudden, it, uh, somewhere in grade school, she puts them in a Lutheran school, and they uh, come over to the house to visit uh, uh, mom, myself, uh, and you, you could tell that they weren't thrilled about being in their Lutheran school. I said, I said, no, 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 you, you, you should be very happy because this will give you something to rebel against later in life. So mm-hmm. it, before they didn't have anything to rebel. Now they, well, they've, got, they've right. got something. <laughs> um, uh, real quick, I want to remind people, you're listening to WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is my cousin Tom Stella, and we're talking about his new book, Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, Inspiration for the Spiritually Homeless and Hungry. And you're listening to Common Threads. I'm wondering, uh, Tom, has COVID done anything? Has it affected your work? In particular, are you still... uh, uh, I know a lot of people in religious communities uh, have said, you know what? Ever since the lockdown ended and people are free to go where they want, more or less, uh, people have gotten lazy. They, they got lazy in COVID. They go, well, geez, I, I don't have to go to church anymore. I don't have to do, I go this place or that place. I'm wondering, uh, in, in your spiritual community, uh, is it back to normal 
or are people insisting that they zoom everything? What What's your take on that? Um, pretty much back to normal, at least. And I think maybe that depends in part on geography. Colorado Springs, where I live, um, not a huge city. And um, COVID certainly was here, uh, as it was everywhere. But most people have gotten back to normal. One of the things I've noticed most, though, with COVID was although there was an initial strife against strafing, I should say, against uh, limitations, many people began to realize their life was kind of crazy, running around, doing multiple things multiple times. And they began to appreciate being more confined and quiet. That, I don't know if you've had that experience with people. That is interesting because... I'm sure it goes both ways because I've also found out, I've, I've heard uh, uh, tales of people just going absolutely stir-crazy of a lot of marital discord, family sure. discord. So, so those people of whom you now speak, they must have had the seed inside them. Something was, was bubbling under all along, and this allowed it to... Uh, it gave it blossom, right? That that all of a sudden they realized, hey, this quietude, this this uh, uh, ability to be away from a lot of people in gatherings, this this seems pretty good. Mm-hmm. Oh, that right. In in our culture um, and others as well, but the pace of life militates against going deeper inside. And when those opportunities to be out and about are limited, um, there is at least the invitation in that to to go deeper and to recognize that there's more to us than we have ever realized. Yeah, yeah, that that opportunity certainly is there. Tom, last week uh, I asked you to share a little bit from the book, and I'm wondering if we could do some of that right now. If you could just go to a couple of quotes uh, from the people who have contributed to the book uh, and sure. and also share some of your thoughts on them. Okay. Yeah, I have uh, opened the book to uh, one called The One God, which is a bit of a poem by Hafiz. I am in love with every church and mosque and temple and any kind of shrine because I know it is there that people say the different names for the one God. So that's the opening quote for this uh, little chapter here. And each chapter is only about a page and a half. These beautifully inclusive words are the work of Hafiz, a 14th century Parisian poet and spiritual teacher. They were as radical in his day as they are in ours, and just as important to embrace. Our theologies may differ, and our religions may be diverse, but there is only one ultimate, intimate reality at their core, one spirit that weaves through their diversity and our humanity. So that's the opening paragraph of about a three-paragraph response to Alfie's poem. I'll tell you, that's, um, that's a very wise insight, and... Uh, one of the things that 
we talk about in interfaith, or a question that is often asked, do these religions have different gods? Is there a Christian God and a Muslim God and a Jewish God, etc., mm-hmm. etc.? Et and one way to look at it is that, let's say that Smith and Jones, two academicians, both write uh, biographies of Abraham Lincoln, but they have completely different takes. One is more sympathetic to Lincoln, one uh, is a bit more adversarial, etc. Well, when we discuss those books, we might talk about Smith's Lincoln uh, and Jones' Lincoln. We might talk about them as if they are two separate people, but we f- know completely and fully we're not talking about two people named Lincoln. We're talking about the 16th president of the United States, Abraham Lincoln. And many of us find no problem. Uh, so when we would say the Muslim God or the Jewish God, we're not talking about two different gods. We're simply talking about God as described in the Quran, God as described in Torah. Uh, uh, but the idea of if you believe in one absolute reality, it's one absolute reality. <laughs> there, there aren't Correct. multiple ones. So I've never heard that, uh, uh, that quote from Hafiz. That, uh, so good. I'm going to start using that. Yeah. Um, uh, we have time yeah. for one more. If you, oh, no, if, if you want to comment more on that, that's fine. And we, I'm sure we have time for one more quote from you as well. Yeah. I just want to say, uh, you know, there are two Greek words, uh, that uh, come to mind, uh, apophatic and cataphatic. Now, those are two different ways of understanding or imagining the divine. The cataphatic is probably the most common. It, it would be basically say that um, that an image of God is helpful in relating to God. So, for instance, God is a father figure or the the old man with the, the gray beard, for instance, can be helpful for people to say, that's the, that's the God I need to am in relationship with. Whereas the apophatic uh, images get in the way. And most mystics, I think, were apophatic. That is, no image of God is God. And uh, God is total mystery. So, you know, that's another way of understanding the, the different ideas of God, is they could fall into one or other category. Right, right. That that makes a, a great deal of sense. So, yeah, as I say, what, uh, we have time for one more uh, quote from your book and a and, uh, brief explanation on your part. Well, uh, let me give you, one, give you one that I think you will appreciate. It's called The Cosmic Lottery. So, true story. I'm walking down Jefferson Boulevard, and this old, long, gray-haired hippie dude leaps out of the bushes and grabs me by the lapels, and he shouts at me, You won. You won, my friend. You won. I said, What did I win? The old man cackled, Ha! Don't you know? You won the Cosmic Lottery. Cosmic Lottery? I don't recall buying a ticket for that one, I said. Yes, yes, that's it, the cosmic lottery. None of this has to be, yet it is. You don't have to be, yet you are. You won. All you have to do to collect is recognize how much it's worth and then give it all away. 
that was actually a, a Facebook post by a, a fellow in South Bend, Indiana. It was a real experience. Really? So I go on in this commentary to say, it's not your everyday encounter that writer John Musinski relates to in this Facebook post. Being confronted by a wild man shouting what appears to be nonsense, but what may also be understood as prophetic utterance, is indeed a rare experience. We are not likely to be accosted by a deranged stranger, but hopefully we will somehow be made aware that we too, without realizing our good fortune, have won the cosmic lottery that is life. You know, it's interesting because when I think back uh, to the people I know who could be called mystics, but you're so right. You said earlier that mystics don't usually call themselves mystics. Uh, it's an appellation that is often foisted upon them. But the people I know who are uh, contemplative, people who are on a, a genuine spiritual journey uh, above and beyond uh, whatever uh, religion they might belong to, they tend to have a deep sense of gratitude on a cosmic level. I mean, a, a, a real... Uh, universal, I'll use the word again, cosmic level, just the idea that we are, we have this opportunity to commune with the divine. So that that certainly does ring true. Certainly does. You know, I meant to say when you asked about mystics, I would say probably a number of the people who, t who tune into your program uh, have a mystical sense if they may not recognize it, but why would they be drawn to listen to what your program is all about? It's because there is something in there that within them that resonates with it. I would say so that you, I think have a lot of uh, mediocre mystics uh, as your listening base. That, that very well may be true, Tom. Very, very well may be true. And I want to thank you so much. We are at the end of this episode, but as always, great to speak with you. Uh, best of luck on the book and all of your very worthy endeavors. Well, thanks very much, Fred. And, and likewise, I look for, forward to the next time we connect at family events. You've been listening to Common Threads. I'm Fred Stella. With me today, my cousin Tom Stella. And we're talking about his latest book, Meditations for Mediocre Mystics, inspiration for the spiritually homeless and hungry. Please join us again next week right here on WGVU. This is Common Threads, an interfaith dialogue. Common Threads is a production of WGVU in cooperation with the Interfaith Dialogue Association. The views and opinions expressed are not necessarily those of the station, its underwriters, or Grand Valley State University. In many cases, the participants on this program represent themselves and may not be designated spokespeople for the faiths they represent. Send questions and comments by email through our website 
www.interfaithdialogueassociation.org. Thank you for listening and join us again next week for another edition of Common Threads. Thank you.